Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Today, we're talking with Liz Schlansky. Liz. How you doing? Welcome to Healthful Woman. Hi, Needy. Nice to be here. <laughs> Good to have you. The question I ask everybody first is, is this your first podcast? This is. Fantastic. Welcome to the podcasting world. Do you listen to podcasts? I do. I was not a big podcast listener, but I got into them recently, which is part of the impetus for doing this. What, what kind of things do you listen to? Usually NPR or a um, handful of other interesting podcasts coming out of NPR. Liz, you're an obstetrician gynecologist. You're currently at MFM Associates on 90th Street, and you're delivering babies at Mount Sinai. Tell us, where did you train? Where did you go to medical school? Where are you from? Start from the beginning. I grew up in Philadelphia and then went to college and outside of Baltimore and then eventually moved to New York to actually work first as an actuary, then decided I didn't want to take those exams. So I went back to Columbia and did my post-baccalaureate science classes and then went to New York Med in Valhalla, New York. So Westchester, New York, and thought I was going to be a medicine and pediatrics doc until I did my OB rotation, at which point I fell in love with OB and have loved it ever since. Pretty much all the people that I've interviewed for this podcast had a very similar story that went to medical school, never thought I'd go into OBGYN, then did the rotation and fell in love with it. I certainly was the same way. I didn't go into medical school thinking I was going to be in OBGYN. What prompted you when you decided you didn't want to be an actuary? Why did you think medicine? For me, it is actually a pretty interesting little family history. So I am the third generation Dr. Schlansky. My grandfather was Dr. Schlansky in Brooklyn, New York. My dad, he was a gastroenterologist. So I kind of grew up in my dad's office, actually greeting his patients, playing in his office. So very familiar with the medical field. I just actually didn't like blood. So I know. Isn't <laughs> so, that interesting? So you became an obstetrician. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> world's world's you know, it's it, our field is relatively bloody. OBGYN, as I started, I just fell in love that it was a great mix of pretty much everything. It was a little bit of medicine, a little bit of pediatrics, a little bit of psychiatry, as well as surgery. It's a very interesting field, and it's always something new. So other than the actuary part of the story, I'm also third generation Dr. Fox. My grandfather was an ophthalmologist in Chicago. My father is a neurologist in Chicago, and then me. I definitely agree with the field, and I also agree with the inclusion of psychiatry in what we do. I mean, it's a lot of high-stress situations and complicated emotions and complicated events, and there's a lot to sort out, and we have the benefit of having a, a lot of interaction with the women who come and see us. We spend a lot of time with them, and so they tend to open up to us about what's going on in their lives, and we have a lot of conversation with them that in other fields, other than maybe psychiatry or pure therapy, you don't really have the time to do that. I think sometimes you see people at the happiest point in their life, and sometimes it's the saddest point in their life. But it's also very hard. Having a baby and being postpartum is possibly one of the most challenging parts of people's lives. Well, we know we're sleep deprived all the time. But for the rest of the population, postpartum is probably the only time that they're going to be significantly sleep deprived. It's hard. It's very stressful. Right. And to be sleep deprived at the exact same time that you're physically recovering from a delivery, 
And, oh, you have a newborn you have to take care of, which is possibly the biggest responsibility people are going to have in their whole lives as well. It's a tough confluence of events that happen all at the same time right after delivery. So you finish your training, you decide to go into OBGYN, and where did you practice initially after you finished your training? So I went to New York Med, and then I did my residency at Danbury, a small community hospital in the western part of Connecticut. And I actually stayed on as an attending in uh, a group that I loved. It's a great hospital. Interestingly enough, I was an infertility patient for several years and then became pregnant with triplets. So just as I entered my senior year of residency, I was pregnant with triplets, was on bed rest for a while, and then ended up graduating from my residency program on Monday. And I was delivered on Tuesday. Did they hold off the delivery <laughs> so you can graduate or was it just did. a coincidence? <laughs> they did. We want you to finish residency before we deliver these triplets. And then I joined a great practice there that was part of a, a group called Women's Health Connecticut. Great docs, but a handful of circumstances happened, part of them being 9-11, and part of them being my then-husband was diagnosed with a bone marrow cancer. And between 9-11, which he was across the street for, we opted that we wanted to move further away from New York. We moved further away, and we moved to Hartford from there. But we actually stayed within the larger company, which was Women's Health Connecticut. And so then I was in Hartford for the next 16 years working out of a hospital called St. Francis. And my role was very varied there. So I got to be hospitalist there. I also got to run one of the resident clinics, which was serving the underserved of Hartford and training residents. So it's it's been a pretty varied and interesting life for the last 20 years in obstetrics. Right, so when you were in Hartford, you were in your practice of your own. I mean, you had a private practice and patients saw you and you were their doctor or your group was their, was their doctors. But at the same time, you had responsibilities in terms of covering the hospital and overseeing resident training. Yes. So you had sort of a mix between what we classically refer to as a private practice versus, uh, I guess, a hospital-based or quote-unquote academic practice. Yes. So the last 13 years were actually working for the hospital, and they had their own hospital-based practice. And so it functioned like a private practice. And then we would also cover the hospital and take shifts covering the hospital and the residency practice. Different thing every single day. So now that you're in New York City, what have you noticed is, if any, are there any differences between sort of what you were doing in Connecticut in practice versus New York City, either because of the the population of patients or because of the hospital or just sort of the role that you have? Have you noticed any major differences? I think our current patients are more proactive about their own health. I think that they're very involved. When you talk to physicians, there are two models of care. There's paternalistic care and there's collaborative care. And I think that the patients that we have in New York are very much part of their own care if you ask them to do something, they will, for the most part, follow through. They'll schedule the next visit. They'll be very engaged. I think the community that I came from, it was a little bit more, not paternalistic, but we had more responsibility for scheduling their appointments and helping them get to the next step and really kind of guiding them from point A to point B. I also think there's a huge difference in our current patient population in general, that people in New York have a much lower BMI than they do in non-urban areas. So the Hartford area, there was an awful lot of obesity. And so that kind of changed some of the dynamics of how you care for people. Yeah, I noticed that when I you know, speak around the country about various topics and we talk about you know BMI, the body mass index, which is basically a measurement of your 
you know, weight as compared to your height. And so the higher the number, the, the higher the level of obesity there could be. And when I mentioned what the average weights and BMIs of our patient population is, most people around the US are pretty surprised that they're so low. And it's, it's much more similar to maybe like a European population that has lower BMIs in the US population. The interesting thing though, is they are surprised that the average age of our patients tends to be a little bit higher than around the country. Yeah, that's definitely a function just geographically. What you mentioned before is very interesting about the idea of you know, how involved do we as physicians have to be in order to help the patients sort of logistically make their next appointment or get to their next appointment. And that is also a real complicated issue in medicine in terms of as physicians, we have a lot of training in terms of what to recommend, when to recommend it, for whom to recommend it. But there's this entire aspect of care, either in relation to access of care or implementation of various recommendations, that's its own science, meaning you can make a whole list of recommendations, but they're not going to help anybody if either people don't have the ability or the access to those recommendations or there's some problem with getting it implemented either in a certain person's life or family or hospital or town or whatever it is. And that's a new area of research and how to improve that. Because like you said, for some, sometimes it's just the doctor has to do it, but sometimes we can't. And it's very complicated how that actually gets done. One of the other things that I've done in the past several years is done mission trips in both Dominican Republic, Central America, and Haiti. And it's interesting because they have cell phones. They sometimes have technologically advanced ways of doing things. But the most interesting thing is my new definition of wealth is choices. I think people think of it as money, but we have so many choices of different ways to take care of ourselves or to handle any one problem. That really speaks to kind of wealth and options. As I was saying before, I mean, I think people locally have lots of choices. They're very enabled and very empowered to get to the next step or the next choice where people in other places may not have those choices. There are some that would argue that at a certain point, maybe there are too many choices, or not that it's too many from a philosophical perspective, but sometimes it's too many from a practical perspective. And I think that there's a balance because sometimes in healthcare, like you said, it's it's really fantastic if people are engaged in their own care and they're collaborative and they participate and we can discuss options with them and figure out what is really the best option for this particular person at this particular time. And that's a great model. But sometimes, and I see this a lot with people who are in training that they have a hard time getting this balance. Sometimes if you present five options to people, they just don't know how to choose. They're like, well, how do I know what's best? And they'll say, they'll sometimes come back, well, I'm not a doctor. You tell me what's best. And it's it's a balance between helping people with the options that they have and what are the risks and benefits or positives and negatives of each one, but also helping them make a decision to actually which one are they going to do and to just drop it in someone's lap is not is not that helpful either. And I think that's also interesting, taking care of patients. I think that people may not be completely aware of what their preferences are. I think in terms of healthcare, as you are a consumer of healthcare, some people like a paternalistic model where somebody tells you what the best choice is. And other people like a very collaborative method of like, here are your six different choices and here's the good and bad. Clearly, the collaborative method takes a lot more time. It's a lot more energy and effort to kind of tell people what their choices are. 
but many people don't want that method of healthcare. They're like, you're the doctor, you tell me what's best. And so I think that is kind of a paternalistic model. And some people completely prefer that. Since I've moved here, there are a few people that have actually said, just tell me what's best. <laughs> tell me what Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. I don't want to hear the choices. Yeah. <laughs> so. That is definitely something that comes up a lot. It's part of the art of this. And it's why there can't just be one way to take care of people. Just like there isn't one way to do anything. It has to be flexible and you have to have fair amount of confidence in order to be flexible. And also you have to have knowledge because you have to sort of know what are the options and what might be the best option. And if someone wants you to help them decide sort of what factors might go into that. And sometimes I'll try to break it down for them at first, say like, okay, if you're this type of person and you know yourself better than I do, you may want to go this way. But if you're this type of person, then you may want to go this way. And it sort of helps put it in a context for them. And sometimes it's just, they just can't, you know, go there. And especially, you know, it's these conversations are easier when things are good. And sometimes it's in the context of either a more emergent situation, which you don't have the time to do that, or maybe not emergent, but a more sad situation or a more emotional situation when people just don't have the capability at that time to process all of these choices because there's so much more going on in their heads. And it's it's very complex. And it's uh, I, I will say that one of your great strengths, Liz, is navigating this because you're a really good communicator and you're very calm listener, which not everyone can pull off. <laughs> most of the time. Listen, I, with more than most people I run into. Has that always been your demeanor? Or is this something you 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 train to do in medicine? Or is it just your, your natural tendencies and it just serves you well as a doctor? My joke is I call myself the, host, the hostage negotiator. I, I probably would have been fine as a hostage negotiator. <laughs> Grew up in a tumultuous household, and maybe it was just my way of coping, not to get too heated about anything. When I tell people they're going to see Liz in the office, I said, it's going to be very relaxing. It's going to be very <laughs> pleasant. It's going to be easy talking. It's going to go nice and slow and smooth and easy, and it's you're going to walk out knowing what you want and what you need, and your heart rate's not going to go up <laughs> during the conversation. And so what do you do when you're not doctoring or listening to NPR podcasts? I still continue to go back and forth uh, between Connecticut and here, and I'm lucky enough to be able to travel with my partner who actually travels throughout the country. And so I'm flying around the country a lot, kind of as a companion. That's been great. And uh, I recently got back into running a little bit, and I ran my first half marathon two weeks ago. And nice. then I ran another one a week later. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it has, has the environment of our office given you the the encouragement Motivation. to run. We have a lot of runners in our office. Actually, it did. It was the start. I think Melka had thrown up one of the ideas of doing something in April. And I was like, all right, I could do that as a goal. And then I think everybody kind of fell off the map on that. But I actually kept going. I'd always wanted to run like a marathon, a half marathon. And it's, it's great. There's nobody left in my age group. So it's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> when I started running marathons, there's, there's a time you have to reach in order to qualify for certain marathons. Like Boston classically is one you have to qualify for. You can't just sign up. You have to be a certain speed. And I did my first marathon and I had my time and I said, well, how close am I to Boston? And they showed me, you know, the time I said, whoa, I have to get either a lot faster or a lot older if I'm going to make it into Boston because it is, it is tough for some of those. But yeah, as we age up in groups, our times are 
relatively quicker, which is which is nice. Today was the choosing of the New York City Marathon, and they did not charge my credit card, and I did not make it by the time. Okay, well, you could just run 26.2 miles Thanks. on your own. You don't need the <laughs> fanfare. We can set up a Gatorade stand for you in Central Park, and we can do it. It's been done before. So you're running and you're traveling. Now, when you travel, are you the type of traveler where you just like to be places? Are you, you know, get up early and see what's there? Or are you, I want to do hiking or sightseeing or museums? What is your travel like? It usually revolves around food and wine. Food and wine. So you like, you're eating yourself around the country. Basically, yeah. It's good to pair that with running because then you can do the, the, the eating helps the running and the running helps the eating. It's a, uh, it's a good match. Yep. Most runners get up early in the morning, get the run in, and then the rest of the day is free. Coming from Connecticut to New York City, you mentioned some of the differences in the patient population and the practice. Have you noticed a difference in terms of like the culture of the hospital? Because I assume the the hospital in Connecticut was probably a little bit smaller, maybe more community-based potentially than Mount Sinai, which is a much larger city hospital. Have you noticed any major differences in either sort of the culture or the atmosphere or how things are run? I think size-wise, obviously Mount Sinai is very large. I think your average deliveries are 8,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where I came from, we were a little under Mm -hmm. 3,000. So it's almost three times larger. In terms of kind of the dynamics, I think that everybody's going to kind of a hospitalist-based system in labor and delivery. So that's very similar. In terms of how the residents interact, I think a lot of it's similar. I think the one thing that you have that's incredibly, well, I think it's amazing. I think your anesthesia service is far superior to anything. By your, you mean our. Our. (laughs) Our. Because I'm pretty sure you're still taking call at Mount Sinai. I am. I am. (laughs) Um, They are just amazing. They are proactive. They jump into helping. They anticipate problems. They're very, very helpful. And they are, I I think, excellent. I mean, medicine, things always go wrong in one way or another. And that includes in our service. But they are super, super helpful. The nurses are great. In terms of culture, I think a lot of the issues that we had in my role, I think in Hartford was a little bit more administrative. So working for the hospital, you know, a lot of times my role was to sort out any conflicts that happened on labor and delivery. I think a lot of that's pretty similar. It's a very big place and they are able to handle more sophisticated cases and more volume and they handle it very well. Can't agree with you more with you know, for example, OB anesthesia, which is you know, one service that's there. These, you know, we call them ancillary, but they're not really ancillary services. They're part and parcel. They're critical components of any labor floor because part of providing safe deliveries for women. Now, obviously, some women will never need to see an anesthesiologist. They don't have, they don't have an epidural and have anything, and great. But if women want an epidural, they're going to need a good OB anesthesiologist who's going to do it safely and give them the right dose, not too much, not too little, and watch over them. And if they need a cesarean delivery or if something goes wrong and they're having complications, they are key members of the team and critical members. And I totally agree that the entire team of OB anesthesia at Mount Sinai is terrific. Great people and they're really good doctors. And it is a training hospital and the residents and the fellows who work there are fantastic. And there's a lot of access, which is nice for patients. There aren't you know, shortages of anesthesiologists. And they can certainly just for the, the typical situation is someone's in pain and they want an epidural quickly, 
that's great. But I would say less commonly, but more importantly, if something is going wrong, they are there right away, just as we would be. And so I agree, that's a, a critically important. You know, things like OB anesthesia, NICU, other you know services around the hospital, people don't always realize how important that is part of their their labor care, particularly if they have complications going into pregnancy and they're potentially at risk for them happening happening at delivery. They are great. They're amazing. Staffing-wise, I think everybody is very professional. Nurses, residents, other fellow attendings, uh, the hospitalists that are there. Everything's very solid across the board. All right. Well, Liz, thank you so much for coming on Health a Woman and telling us all a little bit about yourself. And uh, we look forward to having you on future podcasts here. Thank you, Nady. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.